The first reading today is from 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 13, actually all of verse 13. This is one of my absolute favorite uh, Bible verses, and of course, it is one commonly read during weddings, and I was talking with my wife yesterday, and I said, this is one I won't read at my funeral, because if I have lived my life correctly, then I've shown love. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. And the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Our second reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to follow along in your pew Bibles or to actively listen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. 
The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aramon, Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. The word of God. Oftentimes, we don't always pay attention to all the characters in our Bible stories. But today we should consider all these characters. There's Naaman, a great warrior 
There are two kings, one who is so upset that he tears his clothes. Elisha, a man of God. He's probably a bit of a wild man like his mentor Elijah. There's Naaman's wife, but she doesn't have a speaking part. And then there are the servants. And without the servants, there would be no story, no cure, no happy ending. This story would not be remembered. And this story is remembered through the centuries. Jesus knows this story is so familiar that he refers to it when he preaches his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, saying, now there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And Jesus said, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus doesn't mention the servants, but he wouldn't know the story without them. The story does begin with Naaman, commander of the army of the king, a great man high in favor with his master. The narrator paints a very big picture. This is an important man, a four-star general, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, decorated for military victories in favor with the king, one of the inner circle. Naaman is somebody to be reckoned with. That's how the narrator begins. We have to see that this man is powerful in every way. And then the story takes a turn. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffers from leprosy. The picture of Naaman shifts in our minds. All the greatness described at the start can't change this one terrible truth. He suffers from leprosy. A mighty warrior, but infected with a disease so devastating that his skin is rotting off of his bones. Then someone enters the story, very different from the mighty warrior. She is a slave, carried off in a raid. Mighty warriors are accustomed to such gold and booty, silver, chariots, horses, and yes, slaves. They can have what they want. And this particular slave girl is carried from her home in Israel and now served Naaman's wife. She is as small as Naaman is big. The power he has is the power she lacks, and yet she is not silent. If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, she tells her mistress, he would cure him 
of his leprosy. Now, why does this young girl care about this man whose army had carried her away from her people? That's one question. But here's another. Why does Naaman and the king listen to what this slave girl says? The text doesn't tell us such things, only that the king gave Naaman permission to go. And this is quite significant. The slave girl was captured during one of Naaman's raids on Israel. There is political tension between the king of Aram and the king of Israel. The situation is bizarre. A hostile pagan king asks an impossible favor for his general, thereby setting the stage for disappointment and what might well be the next political disaster. So Naaman departs with lots of gifts and a letter of introduction from his king. But when the king of Israel reads the letter, he is so distressed to the core. Am I God to give life or death? And someone sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? Naturally, the king of Israel thinks, this is between kings, and the king of Aram is trying to trick me. He is so distraught that he tears his clothes. Enter Elisha, the prophet. Stop tearing your clothes, he tells the king. You're not the only one around here, you know. Send the man to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. And with that, the king drops out of the picture, his clothes ripped to shreds, and the mighty warrior and his chariots and horses ripped through the city, the same mighty mob which raided Israel before and won on their way to Elisha's house. And this next scene is great. Elisha stays indoors while a messenger delivers the holy man's words for him. All Naaman needs to do for this leprosy is wash seven times in the Jordan River. That is all. Perhaps contrary to Elijah's expectations, Naaman did not want to be healed, didn't he? The commander of legions is incensed by a series of slights to his dignity. Yes, he has leprosy, but... He is, after all, an esteemed king of Aram who deserves a personal audience with the prophet and not just a second-hand servant-delivered prescription. And then there is insult to injury. Bathe in the Jordan? That muddy trickle? Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the rivers of Israel? And with that outburst, the mighty warrior turns toward home. And that would have been the end of it. Except for the servants. Naaman's servants are horrified with their master's behavior. Father, they said, 
If the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? They know how to get to their master. Of course, he would do something difficult. He had done many difficult things before. He was, after all, a mighty warrior. So sure, surely he's brave enough to wash in a muddy river. And with that, Naaman turns around, went down to the Jordan, and immersed himself seven times. And when he came out of the water that last time, he looked down at his hands and his feet, and he has the flesh of a young boy. And none of the servants even said, I told you so. There would be no story without the servants, without the slave girl who spoke of God's prophet, without the servants who turned Naaman's pride around. The mighty warrior was made whole by the power of God and by the intervention of the servants. We could simply say that this is a wonderful story. The kind of story you tell around the fire, remembering acts of God among our ancestors. But is there anything more? Is there something that the mighty might learn from this story? I would imagine that most of us in this space are mighty. We are part of a mighty country. Who can match our economic might? Even in a falling market, the wealth of the United States exceeds the wealth of the whole developing world. Our country is also a mighty warrior. According to our Defense Department, we have over 800 military bases in more than 70 countries. Our aircraft carriers sail on every sea. Our planes and satellites patrol the globe and all who live on it. But even in smaller circles, we are mighty. We have a roof over our head. We have electricity. We are able to put food on the table. We have a job, perhaps an education, a car. And even if we aren't working, perhaps it is because we can afford the luxury of retirement. We are far mightier than most individuals in the world who make on average a yearly income of $200. We are probably mightier than many others in our own country. All this might tends to make us look the other direction. Not on purpose, but perhaps out of busyness or out of fear, out of complacency, out of simplicity's sake. Do the mighty have anything to learn? Do we need to listen to anybody? Lately, it seems that we are mighty enough to say no to both questions. 
In recent years, we have refused to sign international agreements to protect the environment, even though we produce more destructive gases than any other nation. We are mighty enough to make up our own rules. We protest the establishment of an international war crimes court unless Americans are given certain exemptions. We name those who agree with us as our friends and label all others as insurgents. And our might is not strictly global. It hits home too. Most recently, I think about the images that we saw on television after Hurricane Michael, images of the lesser waiting on the mighty. Our might seems to inform our brains that we have all the answers. Our way is the better way. And those with less, less education, money, things, ultimately power, are not smart enough to be as intuitive and knowledgeable or as advanced as us mighty people. So just listen to us. We think the answer for the unemployed or the poor or the single parent is to just get a job or another job or get an education. We assume that the unmighty are lazy. What might the mighty learn from the other peoples of this world? What are some questions we might ask about our own mighty, beloved country? We might ask, how do we have the right to raid war on a sovereign country just because we don't like their dictator? Or do we have the right to consume 80% of the world's resources when we only make up 20% of the population? How do we continue to risk the lives of young, brave soldier, soldiers and pay them less? Or perhaps not at all. How is the poor of our country supposed to find a job and keep it when they have to stand line after, in line, filling out paperwork and going to meetings in order to just qualify for food stamps or government housing because working full-time at a minimum wage they can only bring in $800 a month. Does our might mean we no longer see ourselves as part of a community? What would we learn if we listened to the poorest of the world's people and to the poorest people in our own country? What might the mighty learn if we risked such questions? Naaman would not have been restored to health, health if he hadn't listened to his servants. Millions of the world's people must feel that our country treats them like servants, sewing our clothes and drilling our oil and stitching our sneakers and falling in line whenever we call. We are a mighty nation. But our overconsumption of the world's resources might signal a sign of sickness rather than health. And it has become all too clear that our mighty might has not made us feel safe or secure. Ethicist Larry 
Rasmussen draws us back into the heart of Scripture, calling us to new ways of thinking and radically new ways of acting. He says, the world has created by God is abundant. It is sufficient for all if appetites are restrained. The disparities of wealth and power are not natural, but the result of life going awry. And then he says, the prophetic call to redistribution and reordering of society is good news to the poor, and it is essential and urgent task for people of faith. Our denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, does actively work to help with this redistribution. Our Relief, Refugee, and Development Mission Fund, Week of Compassion, seeks to equip and empower disciples to alleviate the suffering of others through disaster response and humanitarian aid and sustainable development and through the promotion of mission opportunities. And they give us the opportunity to empower those less fortunate. And Week of Compassion is more than just giving money. It is also about stopping our busy lives to listen. It's about taking time out to pay attention. It's turning our eyes from our mighty selves to empower others. The world would be a healthier place if our people could grasp a vision bigger than our might. Whoever you are, wherever you are, alone or with others, how can you and I help this mighty nation learn to listen? Naaman was a mighty warrior, but all his might could not restore him to health. And he would have never been healed if he hadn't listened to those who had no power. God help us and God heal us. Amen.